The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I'll make, I'll make some more handouts if we need during a break. So um, let's start with a sitting. Maybe sit quietly for a short while and then I'll do a little guided instruction uh, to add to the sitting in a little while once, we're, once we're, it feels pretty settled here.
as we continue sitting this meditation session, be mindful in particular of anything in your mind that can be called a reaction. Someone closes a door loudly and you react to it by tightening up around the thought, how could someone do that in the meditation hall? Or a breath is particularly sweet and not just, you don't just let it be a sweet breath, but you start planning how you're gonna have more sweet breaths. See if you can identify the difference between and some movement in the mind which is reactive, it's reacting for or against what's arising, and the simple arising of phenomena, simple arising of sounds and breath and sensations and thought. And every time you notice something to be a reactive reaction, give it the very quiet note reaction. No need to judge it or feel bad about having reactions. The task here is just to notice when they happen. Some of them are quite subtle, <coughs> some of them are gross. See if you can become aware of when and how the mind is reactive. Something occurs and then the mind gets involved in that, gets entangled, gets, reacts to it, thinks about it, judges. So many ways in which the mind can react to what's happening. Notice Simply notice, without judgment, the reactions that occur.
And what's the difference between allowing something just to occur? The sound of the traffic, my voice, sensations in your body, thoughts, versus reacting to them, being for or against them, judging them, having desires or aversions in relationship to it, contracting or how does it feel different between allowing things to happen versus getting entangled with it? I'd be curious to hear from a few of you, especially if someone hasn't spoken yet today, but from um, if you are able to discern the difference between a mind that allows things to arise and pass, occur, versus one that's reactive to how things are happening, to up involved in reactivity. So that's, what did you what did you notice? What did you see in that? Exercise. Um, <clears throat> I noticed that. Um, when I uh, wasn't caught in the reactivity, my body would relax a little bit. Um, and it was interesting because um, my mind was particularly busy that during this sitting, so the things to be potentially reactive to were coming fast and furious. Um, so even though I could notice the sense of relaxation if I didn't react to them. It was still a strong momentum to pay attention and go with the old story of, well, if I just resolve this, then, then I can relax. I've done this a zillion times, but um, it was interesting to notice how strong the ease of relaxing 
really had to be paid attention to in order to have it gain some weight mm -hmm. because the weight of the old habit is very strong. Great. Thank you. I found it um, just the exercise of noting what I was reacting to was like an exercise in mindfulness. It, it was noting, noting, and I found with that my mind stilled a lot. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. So when I'm able to get into a good state while I'm sitting, it's very peaceful. And if I allow myself to be distracted by something and start making a thought about it, that peacefulness is broken. So it, it's nice to be able to maintain that state mm -hmm. without paying attention to too many things. Great. Thank you. I noticed that the mind is more active after lunch than before lunch. And uh, so I noticed there was more of a flurry of, of things uh, that you really wouldn't follow because I couldn't follow all of them. But I found it was less distracting than it might have been because of having done meditation before lunch. Uh, so I just decided it would, it would just let it pass. Like it would be, it was kind of a small, small storm squall, but it was a sense that it was going to, going to die and just let, let it die. Let it be as opposed to get involved in it. And <coughs> right. Beautiful. Okay. okay. I don't know if it's uh, today or in general a, a, a change in myself and I, as a result of uh, paying attention to this topic in meditation, slowly, uh, very slowly, over time, as a result of paying attention to this in meditation, I'm starting to see the whole same whole, the whole operation goes on during the day too. Uh, and I'm starting to catch it. If, if I'm not uh, paying close attention to whatever it is I'm doing, my mind will do the same thing then as it does during meditation. Mm -hmm. And somehow that feels like some sort of improvement. Or I think it's a great progress. Or great something. progress. I think uh, the, the, to, uh, to, to no longer have a line between the mind in meditation and the mind outside of meditation is a really good thing. And then it's all one continuous, you know, life, and we're practicing in all of it equally. And meditation isn't something really, you know, esoteric. It's just a more concentrated version of what we do in life, how we practice in life. Good. So, um, I hope that that exercise gave you some indication, perhaps, or pointed you to two things. One is what it's like when there is no equanimity, because that's what reactivity means. When you're reacting, there's no equanimity. And, but, if, but the other side of that, when there's no reactivity, you're just allowing things to occur, that give you a little taste of what it's like to be equanimous. Because just allowing things to unfold the way they do um, is, a, is a function that uh, equanimity has. You, even if you're agitated, some of you talked about after lunch being kind of busy and this flurry of thoughts, um, you might conventionally think that, oh, if I'm equanimous, I must be calm and peaceful and settled. But it's, it's the con equanimity is kind of like the, con the container that holds whatever's going on. And so sometimes you can actually be quite worked up, but you can feel a bigger container, a bigger context that holds it of, uh, that's more, um, not, it's non-reactive, more accepting, more spacious, more allowing of it. Um, the same thing can be true in our relationship to other people. 
it's possible to be reactive towards other people and it's possible to um, uh, have a certain equanimity towards other people and what's going on. And a very important part of Buddhist practice is, is to cultivate equanimity uh, in our relationships to other people. And, um, and so one of the meditation practices that we have in our tradition is called, is, is our, or set of meditation is called the Brahma Viharas, the practices of the divine abidings. The, um, and there's loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and the last one is equanimity. And equanimity is meant to be a kind of a, I, I see it as kind of a love, a form of love or form of caring for other people, a form of warm-heartedness towards other people. When, when our warm-hearted regard for other people um, uh, is informed by equanimity. So if someone is happy, warm-hearted regard shares their happiness with them. If someone is suffering, the warm-hearted regard in a certain kind of way shares their suffering with them. They, you feel their suffering, you wish it to be Otherwise, you wish to alleviate their suffering. If someone is um, having lots of success in life, maybe you feel sympathetic joy. You share in the success, the joy of it all. Some of you did that this morning when we celebrate a little bit the retreat center. And, um, but there are times in life where you are warm heart regard for someone. Um, we're encountering someone who is not, who is making a mess of their life. Maybe they're suffering and they're just making things worse by what they do. And we've done what we can to try to help and be supportive. And even so, we can't do much about it or nothing about it. And they're going, make, you know, taking a wrong turn in their life. We still have the warm regard for them. You could still wish them happiness, but it's not going to happen. It's not, that's not the name of the game right now. Um, uh, you, it doesn't make sense to have sympathetic joy for them as they go down, <coughs> downhill that way. You might have compassion, but compassion is only pretty limited because compassion means you, you're, you're actually thinking, may that person be free of suffering? And may I even help with that? But you've tried and didn't help. And to wishing them free of suffering, when it's, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, it's not going to happen, really. You know, not in any short term, not today. So, you, you know, compassion is not really the thing. But your, your warm heart regard needs to sometimes, if you want to stay balanced and everything, to take the side of equanimity. And um, it can, it's meant to be a beautiful state, though again, this is a bit one that's very easily seen as indifference, aloofness, not caring for someone. But this is this thing where you see someone's making choices in their life which is not good for themselves. You can't have any, benefit, you can't feel like you can intervene or do something for it. And so you realize, that we have the, your, your wisdom says, that person is making his or her own choices and will experience the consequences of those choices independent of what I wish for that person. And, and that reflection, for some people, can let the, help their mind be non-reactive, more, more balanced, they're more, not caught up in it. So I know for me, as a, for example, as a, there are a number of people in my life who uh, suffer and make poor choices. And one of the ways that I get hooked into it is, um, is my sense of responsibility for them. It's up to me to help them. It's up to me to do something. I have to do something. It's up, you know. And it's been helpful for me to realize at times that I can try to be supportive and helpful, but I can't take responsibility for their happiness or unhappiness. That doesn't make any sense. And uh, if, if I can't be helpful, if they don't allow me into their lives to help them, then um, I think what's, I still care for them, I still have this warm-hearted regard for them, this love for them, but um, I'm, I, I, it doesn't make any sense for me to suffer, to be pulled down, to get uh, when you know, or to feel responsible or hooked in. I think the wisest thing for me to do is to um, have what Buddhism is called equanimity, this non-reactive mind, while I have this warm regard for them. That make sense. Yes. So that's, this is considered very important in Buddhism, this idea, and because if you don't have this wisdom, this kind of understanding, it's really easy to get pulled in or to be pulled down and be caught up and get reactive and, you know, in all kinds of ways. So there are a number of reflections that are used for this, or this kind of wisdom teaching. And uh, one of, uh, so I'll read them to you. And maybe you can listen and, 
and maybe maybe consider a way relationships you're in, people, situations you've been in, where this particular phrase, this particular piece of wisdom, maybe applies in such a way that you're a little bit more relaxed, that you're a little bit less leaning forward and trying to or, or clamping down or something. You are the owner of your own choices. You are the owner of your own karma. Your outcome depends on your actions and not on my wishes. Your outcome depends on your actions and not my wishes. No matter, no matter how much I might wish things to be otherwise, things are as they are. No matter how I might wish things to be otherwise, things are as they are. Although I wish only the best for you, I also know that your happiness and unhappiness depends upon your actions not my wishes for you. Although I wish only the best for you, I also know that your happiness and unhappiness depends on your, upon your actions, not my wishes for you. Whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a lawful nature. Whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding here according to a lawful nature. So, Um, these are the, these are some versions of the equanimity phrases that some people will have come up with, um, and uh, different people tr- have tried different ways of wording it. When they do equanimity meditation, they say these words over, thinking about some person, and they say these words over again. Um, some of these phrases work for some people; some don't work for others. What I'd like uh, you to do is to uh, uh, um, find another person, so you pair up with someone, and uh, pass these out, and look at these uh, phrases, and uh, have a discussion about, mostly about how these phrases, when and how these phrases could be useful for you. Included in that, you know, but a smaller percentage of the time, could be um, what you think about these phrases, what's your reaction and response to looking at this, and you know, how, how do you feel about these kinds of phrases? So, when would these phrases be useful for you? And then what do you think about these phrases in general? Make sense? So if, maybe Ed, if you can pass, the, maybe a couple people can pass these out. Maybe three people here. Thank you. So find uh, someone to pair up with. And again, you might want to spread out in the outer hall and conference room just so that it's a little bit quieter in here. Where's the other mic? It's over there? Okay. So it would be nice uh, to hear a little bit from you what that discussion was like for you, what, what you might have learned or what might have been surprising or, or how it was to do it. Well, these sayings can uh, raise a tough question when uh, one feels one might have been a contributor to the um, to the problems that somebody uh, is having. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that could add some challenges. 
Do you have any wisdom about that? You? Do you have any wisdom about that issue? What helps you? Oh, it wasn't your question. But still you might have some wisdom. Well, yes, the other person, it, it takes two to tang- tango and to tangle. <laughs> Good. Is Ellen? in response to that that um, we were looking at these all from the point of view of saying it to yourself as well so if you're saying to someone you're the owner and heir to your own karma and you feel like you played a role in that taking that upon yourself and sort of being embodying it or being it could also have an effect on another other person and maybe um, your role in their karma could become clear or resolve itself In our dialogue, we were t- we were talking about, um, and and this just still is is an evolving kind of uh, awareness of mind. But um, say my husband isn't listening to me as I would hope he would. Uh, in in this say. Small, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's just take that possibility. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I have a tendency to, well, that's just the way he is. I'm, I'm referring to this third one, no matter how I might wish things to be otherwise. Things are as they are, and so I'll say, okay. He just isn't in the place to listen right now. Um, so I'll just let it be. But there's also the fact that I am wanting to be listened to in this moment. Um, and, and when I'm able to just say that to him, sometimes he will just uh, bring his attention, and and, I'll, and and that'll that'll be how things are in that moment. So things as they are in this moment doesn't mean anything really about how they are in the next moment. Right. And I'm trying to remember that. Um, and then I guess this all goes along with you know that the awareness that I might be able to affect uh, things and bring about what, I, what I'd like um, uh, in, in any moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time as realizing sometimes I can't affect things right. and I can just relax about that. Mm-hmm. So this just points out to the danger of taking this equanimity practice uh, and acceptance practice as a kind of passivity. Right. And there's things that should, certainly shouldn't be accepted. But uh, let's say that you have a really big need to be listened to by your husband. And let's say he's not in the mood at all. He had a terrible day, just like he's hardly recovered from a day. But you have this big need. <clears throat> so you can see, well, things as, uh, things as they are right now is he's having a hard time, he needs to chill, but I have a big need too. And so say that you tell him what your need is. And maybe he then comes around and listens to you. But prior to that, say you, so you have confidence that you can ask him that for his attention and he'll give it to you. So that's, just, that's assumed. So prior, that, prior to asking, um, uh, what, what, how would it be useful to simply recognize, oh, this is how it is right now? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, so, that does seem useful. So well, how, but how is it useful? Um, well, to allow the uh, to allow that possibility to seem real <laughs> that it is. Uh, what's your, what's your things are just the way they are, and that uh, uh, that that can be okay no matter what's going on. So, what what would you not be given this piece of wisdom? What would you not do? Um, what, what, is, what, is, what does that keep you from do, from doing? What would I not do? Well, I wouldn't necessarily just be quiet. Um, maybe in that moment I would, but, in, but I'd be open to saying something. 
um, maybe in a slightly kinder way than I would have otherwise, though, if I weren't just being reactive. Mm -hmm. If I did just kind of sit with that feeling first before saying something, that that mm -hmm. probably would be a good so, thing. So you might be less reactive, but right. you might still speak up what your need is, Right. but you wouldn't be all convoluted about it, you know, and huffy, and not that you are huffy, but... Good, that's beautiful. Thank you. Someone else? Yes. Could you elaborate upon uh, whether I understand it or not, not things are unfolding according to a lawful nature? I really don't understand what the lawful nature yeah, is. Yeah, it's a hard one. So usually this refers to the, the unfolding of karma. And karma is the, that piece of causality, cause and effect, that has to do with kind of a psychological causality. So, so if, <clears throat> say that uh, someone um, has, um, um, you know, do, do, been doing something really mean ongoingly, and you, you've tried to intervene, you try to tell a person they can't do it, they shouldn't do that, and they keep going, doing it, and then uh, that's going to play itself out a certain kind of way in the world or in their psychology. Sooner or later it's going to come back and bite them. So it's going to unfold. If, if they're clinging, if they're doing something that's uh, unskillful, at some point it's going to unfold in such a way, one way or the other, it's going to come back and bite them. And so the idea of, I mean, this in Buddhism, the idea of a lawful karma is that um, it's how actions have consequences. And no, one, and no one can be free of the consequences of their actions, uh, 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 the psychological consequences of their actions. What the worldly con consequences of their actions, that's a whole other thing. But sooner or later, their, their heart's going to come back and bite them if they do unskillful things or bad things. The law is the law of karma. It's the law of karma yeah, we've meant here. Yeah. Kim and I had a long conversation about that last one also, uh, because uh, I didn't know what a lawful nature meant, and I still have these weather problems, you know, with the, if, it, if, it, if you're in Joplin and the tornado comes and gets you, was that a lawful nature, or a ran, we talked about randomness and things that were lawful. Um, it sort of helped when I simply stopped the sentence after the word unfolding. Whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, as a psychologist, this is probably a very strange thing for me to say, but I really think that that kind of digging around psychologically is sort of the booby prize because it doesn't necessarily change anything for anybody except you have a lot of, I know a lot of people who've had a lot of therapy have a lot of understanding and continue to do the same unskillful <laughs> stuff year in and year out. So um, it, just, it just helped me to so stop so, after the word unfolding. So especially, so, so especially as a psychologist, meaning, meaning these people are just going to do what they're doing anyway, and it, even though they pay me all this money, it's, <laughs> it's, going, to, it's going to unfold whatever. <laughs> well, that's why I don't do that kind of psychology anymore. <laughs> So, John, up on, the, up on the stage behind you, Ellen. This came up in our conversation. I was pointing out that uh, when, when I was working at NASA, physicists are often trying to point out that when they talk about natural laws, they're talking about something that's descriptive of what happens, not something that's proscriptive of what ought to happen. And they're... they're jokes among physicists that play on these two meanings of the word law because they're just saying this is the way it, when they talk about laws of nature they're saying this is just the right. way it is and nice nice behind you uh, Gail This is a tough one. I, I understand we're responsible. We're, uh, 
we accept the consequences of our actions, the good and the bad, you know. But there's something about karma that we don't have total control over. Um, and there's something liberating if a person knows that they're doing the best they can. And some things just happen, like, you know, when I had a similar situation where a guy was playing bumper cars with my car in a parking place, you know, and I don't know, Barbara remembers I got out and I was a little unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> um, that wasn't my intention, right. you know. And some things just happen because of prior conditioning. And as long as I recognize what happened and try to keep making improvements, and we have to, to me it seems like allow these changes to happen. So even though we're, if I do something, I have to deal with the consequences. Not everything I do at this moment, there's something liberating about forgiving myself for making a boom. That's a good point. So part of this equanimity thing is to realize that sometimes we have to live out the consequences of our actions. So if, um, I mean, sometimes we do something which is unskillful, maybe, we, maybe accidentally even, and, um, and someone's really upset with us, um, uh, what's required perhaps is to live out the person being accept with, uh, upset with us, and just say, okay, this is how it is right now, and as much as I can apologize for a while, this person's going to be mistrustful of me, and, and I've done what I can, but this is uncomfortable, but I just have to accept, accept this or be equanimous about this. Or, um, or sometimes if you do something, uh, I remember many years ago um, discovering that my behavior was not ethical, and I was really shocked to see it. And, and it took, you know, I felt pretty pained by what I had done. And so then I, um, uh, I knew that, okay, I have to live with this pain. You know, I mean, I did, I did what I could do, I make it, made amends, did the best I could, but now the equanimity had to do, okay, I have to, the, the, Things unfold according to lawful nature. You do something like this, regret, remorse, certain kind of inner pain is part of it. So I'll have to be equanimous and let this be part of my life now for a while. As opposed to, you know, well, I'll let go of that and just kind of, <laughs> you know, let's go out and get ice cream and, you know, you know, skip down the street and let's all be happy. That, I don't think that's a very mature life. So this, the, the, the equanimity, these, 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 these equanimity phrases, we apply to ourselves as much as it does to someone else. So I wanted to read to you an uh, ancient uh, Theravadan uh, teaching on the perfection of equanimity. Remember that, that for this to be a parami, a perfection, it's, it's linked with compassion. Equanimity is accompanied by compassion and compassion by equanimity. Someone may ask, how can the bodhisattvas, the great compassionate ones, look upon living beings with equanimity? Some teachers explain it this way. They do not show... So the question is, how could you do both things? If you have equanimity, how could there also be compassion there? Right? You can't have two different... The, the assumption is you can't have two different emotional states at the same time, attitude at the same time. So how could you, but, but these bodhisattvas, these people are supposed to be compassionate and having the equanimity of the Brahma-vihara, of the paramis are supposed to be compassionate as part of it too. So how can you have both these working together at the same time? So this is one answer that the ancients gave. Um, so those bodhisattvas do not show equanimity towards living beings as such, but toward the offensive actions performed by beings. So in other words, you separate out the, the actions of the person from the person. And so the person receives your compassion. Their actions receive your equanimity. And uh, that way you can kind of, you know, you, you, you can hold them in a different way. You can hold, you know, people don't feel like they're being judged as a person. They feel like you're still, your warm regard is still there. And it's a lot easier for them to come towards you uh, and relate to you if you're only kind of criticizing or only have questions, have uh, reservations about the actions they've done. And maybe some of you have been the recipient of that kind of uh, relationship where someone, you've done something that maybe you regret and someone clearly 
agrees with you that you really blew it with me. But um, but they're not they're not they're, you know their care and their friendship for you is still intact. But it's the action that you did that they're criticizing. And, and so to be have equanimity about the actions, not necessarily the person. It's a beautiful thing, I think. The same text goes like this. This is kind of a, maybe a summary. Equanimity purifies loving kindness. Remember that loving kindness is the per- perfection before equanimity. The last one we did last month. So they're all in sequence. So here it says equanimity purifies loving kindness. I think it's also quite beautiful. Rather than superseding or doing away with love or loving kindness, it's what purifies it. So it means that, you, partly so that your loving kindness is not partial. There's not excessive kind of reactivity or habitual kind of um, um, con- conditioning that comes into how we're loving or kind to someone. So equanimity purifies loving kindness. <clears throat> the function of equanimity is to see things impartially. It manifests, its, ma- its manifestation is the subsiding of attraction and repulsion. Its proximate cause is reflection on the fact that beings inherit the results of their own karma. So there's something, for the Buddhist tradition, something very powerful about appreciating that people are the recipients of their own karma. Yes, Liz. Um, Earlier I was just appreciating something about that phrase that your own karma, um, you can be the heir to many things that happen around you that you didn't initiate um, and some that you did, so they're combined. Um, And yet when it comes to your next step, it's your own karma in the sense that you then have choice over your intention or your action. And and that's the whole whole focus on the, uh, the Buddha's teachings on karma is to point us towards our, the intention and choice we make right here and now. And it's not, about, it's not a way of explaining the past or predicting the future, but it's a, uh, it's a whole way of emphasizing that you, the choices you make now are consequential. And so Ted said earlier about how his intention you know, in the parking lot was one thing, but you know, his conditioning was different. Um, what uh, what uh, Buddhism would say is that actually he had a a conscious intention was one way, but his more subconscious intentions were something else, because he's still making a choice. But he, doesn't, he didn't have the presence of mind, he didn't have the mindfulness to see where he was making a choice to give in to his anger in that situation. And a part of the function of mindfulness is to be quiet enough and, and strong enough obs- uh, powers of observation, we can start seeing the places of choice that we have. Because if we don't see the place of choice, but we're acting out of conditioning, we're acting out of automatic habit, um, then we're still going to, then we're going to receive the consequences of that behavior. And so I don't know what consequences uh, Ted received, but uh, you know, you do the, you do the wrong thing uh, in the parking lot, someone's bumping you, and actually some, someone I know recently explained to me how a distant relative uh, got involved in a road rage incident that uh, he ended up killing the other person. So, you know, these, you know, the consequences of that is the person's in jail. And um, so, so anyway, so there's choice involved, but we get lost, we get swept away, swept up in, in these things. So the function of mindfulness is to bring us back and keep us right there at the beginning so that we can have more choice. Yes? Can we move the mic back to John? I was just curious, um, so on your, when you're telling the story of how you um, thought you were being very mindful and then you went pop and got so agitated with the, the delivery truck driver. So I was just wondering, so then what happened next? And how did you, well, one, are you still harboring resentment toward him? Uh, but how did you bring yourself back then? Um, and what were the... You know, which of the factors maybe that we talked about this morning, or how did you come back to say, "Wow, I just you know got really." Well, that wow was right was right away for me. 
so I, I, so he moved, and so I drove off. And then I said, I kept thinking, this is something, I need to look at this more carefully. So I spent time reflecting then, what happened there? What was going on for me? I felt like I needed to study that and learn from that. And what I learned was that even though I thought I was being mindful, uh, I had blinders on. If I had been more open my attention, I would have seen the frustration that was there uh, as part of the experience as well. But I had some, for some reason I didn't see the frustration. I wasn't in my body enough at that time. But if I'd been anything more grounded in my body, I would have noticed, you know, that uh, the frustration or the tightness that was building up, even though on the surface I thought I was calm. And in your interaction with him, uh, did you, like, apologize for getting worked up about it? Uh, did you, how, how did it work interpersonally? In sort of no, it was over very quickly. He just turned around and got, his, got in his car and, <laughs> and, and, and moved, and I was content with that. And, I think that if I thought it was strong enough, I wouldn't have done nothing. I would have just been patient, let him do his thing, because I didn't want to act from that place. Um, if, I had, uh, if I had seen the frustration, I might have uh, uh, walked up to him and breathed deeply and, and not said what I had to say right away. I would have said, you know, hello, and somehow did that in a slower way and see if I could, could have said it in a more tempered or paced way, what I had to say. I would have been more careful. Yes? Uh, it's just related to it. Uh, um, I was thinking more about being on the other side. I found that it can be very helpful when somebody suddenly gets really worked up and really jumps at you, and when they're really overreacting or unjust, if you don't get offended and if you really apologize and uh, uh, behave nicely to them, uh, it takes people very short time to come back to their senses and they see their own problems. So yeah. it can be really helpful if you are on the other side of the situation just not getting upset, not seeing yourself as exactly. a victim of somebody's rage, but the other way around, trying to see how it can help. Exactly. Yeah. You can experience, add, it's very easy, it works. You can either add, you can add uh, fuel to the fire, or you can uh, calm the situation down. It's like, I love the story, I mean, uh, Norman Fisher many years ago told the story of, of um, going to a parking lot there was hardly any, no parking spaces left, but then he found one. So he went into it, not noticing that uh, there was another person been waiting for that parking lot to be available. And so he kind of cut the person off. So the person was reasonably, you know, that person had it first, right? So, so he, the person got out of the car and was really upset and yelling at Norman, saying, you know, you, you know how could you do that? I was waiting. And, and uh, Norman let him <coughs> vent. <coughs> and then Norman said, you have to be very careful how you do this. Norman could do it, get away with it. <laughs> But he said, uh, you're having a hard day, aren't you? And when, and when he said that, the guy just relaxed. And he said, yeah, it's a hard day. And I don't know what happened when the Norman moved out of the way or not. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, just, just kind of, Norman just held it. And held it in a wide way and relaxed, calm way and was able to dissipate the, the tension. Now it's on. Um, to me, that story, and, and I think goes back to the reading that I really try to work with, is that compassion for me has been a partner in equanimity. That I really see it has, for me, it has to be there all the time. Because one, if, if I do something unskillful, the compassion is, lets me know there were things that happened that I didn't catch. My experiences in life just got caught up. I didn't see it, and there's compassion so then I have a wider view to then look at it and reflect. And the same thing with this other person, that sometimes if they're just coming at you and coming at you and they can't stop, there's something that's going on for them. And that compassion for me is recognizing that. And also, they, and sometimes I go, it's like, 
what's happening inside somebody that actually can't stop themselves, that they have to keep going at you, and how yeah. uncomfortable and horrible that it must be for them. Person. And for me, compassion allows me to relate to that a little bit, and, and it helps me, okay, just come back, you know, be equanimous, and, and still acknowledge, well, it is uncomfortable, I do have frustration in yeah. what they're doing, but there's things here I don't understand because compassion allows me to, to know that. Beautiful, yeah. So I think, I, think you know, I hope that you get a little bit of sense of uh, what profound thing it is to maintain equanimity in the face of other people's behavior and actions. It doesn't mean we have to naively accept it or, or even allow things to be, but to somehow it's a way of keeping our heart open. And uh, even if we disagree with what they're doing and need to say something to them, that they get the sense from us that we, we're, that we stay open to them, we stay receptive, we're there, we treat them with respect. And so there's a kind of uh, equanimous regard of who they are that, the, that is steady, uh, independent of the ups and downs of how they might behave and how we might interact with them. So uh, we're coming to the end. It's ten minutes after three. And um, we could either, we could do one of two things. I don't think we could time for both. Uh, one is that... Um, we could just dis- uh, discuss anything about this topic of equanimity from the day that you feel might be useful or you feel a need to, to follow up with. Um, or we could take a very short silent break and then come back and do a short uh, equanimity meditation. B. B. <laughs> okay. So let's, take, uh, let's try to do this less than 10 minutes, silent break, And um, so we'll start in here at uh, 3.20 for just a 10-minute short.